Amen. Good morning. Grab your seat. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. And today we're going to be continuing in Philippians chapter 1. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap. We would invite you to open up your copy so that you can read with us from Philippians chapter 1. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, don't panic. We'll put those words on the screen. Love to give you a copy on your way out. And Philippians is important. It's scripture, so duh. But also, in this book, it's short, it's only four chapters, we see a lot of stuff that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. I don't know how well what's described in Philippians matches up with the life that I'm living or the expectations I have of the church, what the church is going to be like, how the church is going to interact with the world. Because when you read Philippians, you read something that is filled with hope. He keeps saying to rejoice. And again, he says it, rejoice. And it's no problem to write it again to you. And it's benefit to him, it's benefit to you. So again, he'll say it, rejoice. But he says it from a jail. So it doesn't seem to make sense. And whatever is at the heart of that contrast, it's something that I want us to get. And the reason is because he seems happy when things aren't great. And things aren't great. And yet, I want you, like Paul, to have joy. I want you to have hope. I want you to be willing to push forward and to preach what God has called us to preach, as David was talking about from Romans, where the the Lord is clear. They don't believe if they don't hear. They don't hear if somebody doesn't preach. They don't preach if somebody doesn't send these people out with that word. When I, when I see the church today, it seems to fit with the church as it's described through Scripture. You go into the New Testament and you see that when Jesus came and he, he did his ministry, he then ascends into heaven in the first part of the book of Acts. And when he goes, he leaves 11 guys looking up into the sky. That is hardly the earth-shaking movement that you expect him to leave behind. He leaves, and there's some people around, I'm sure, as well. But there's 11 apostles standing there watching, and the angels then speak to him, and you get the impression that the angel smacks him on the back of the head like, what are you still looking at? He's going to come back the same way you saw him go. Now, get to work. And they do. Pentecost takes place. This amazing thing begins to take place. But you go from small uh, odds against them, only 11 guys, to Pentecost. Thousands come to believe. Oh, man, that's very exciting. But then very soon after that, you get Stephen and you get this persecution that takes place. And all of a sudden, again, the church gets smashed. They're They're not winning anymore. And true, Paul, this guy, actually gets saved in that moment. One of those chief persecutors of the church becomes one of the chief advocates of the church. That's very exciting. And yet, by the time you get to Philippians, you see that yet again, the leadership of the church, the ones who are going to bring the gospel all the way around the world, are in jail. They're done. They're back again. They're stuck. They're chained up. The Word of God seems to be chained up. All throughout the scripture, God's people seems small. 
Mark Twain, if you ever read any of his stuff, he wrote a book called Roughing It, where he talks about his movement from uh, wherever he was in kind of the Missouri area all the way to Nevada and then eventually all the way to Hawaii, what they called the Sandwich Islands back then. And you can tell as you're reading it, and I'd encourage you, if you want to read it, to read it. He, he talks about our city, not in very flattering ways, unfortunately, but he does. He goes through Salt Lake City once upon a time. And he talks about the West, and you can tell that he's taken by the, the vastness of the West, the scope and beauty of the Western United States. And he should be. It's beautiful, and it's gigantic. But then, as kind of one of the world's first sort of traveling correspondents, he goes and he spends time in the Middle East, and he writes about that as well, this travelogue. And you can tell that he is very unimpressed by the scope there. Because you read the Bible and you see Israel and you think about all these nations around as this sort of grand, majestic, gigantic thing. And then you get there and, yeah, it's not very big. Compared to Utah, it's not that large. And Israel, as you're reading Scripture, doesn't feel that large. It seems like this tiny little mouse that's got all of these nations around it, like Egypt and Syria and Babylon and Persia, and then Greece and Rome and these gigantic empires that circle Israel like tigers or lions. And there's this little Israel, this little mouse, the people of God. The New Testament feels the same. Our current day feels the same. David shared those numbers, and he should. That's the task. That's the overwhelming number of people who aren't affected yet by the church. Feels small. So, how, with all of this against us, do we have the tone that Paul has in Philippians? Read with me in verse 12. This we're picking up where we left off last week in chapter 1. Verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers... What's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of my, uh, unto all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The whole salvation of all of humanity is dependent on that small number of Christians getting that gospel out to the world. And one of the chief leaders of this movement is in jail. That sounds like a bad thing. But when you hear Paul talk about it, you know, he's kind of pumped. Oh yeah, I'm in prison, but let me tell you, there's actually been some pretty cool stuff. And he starts laying out the reasons for his optimism. We can be critiqued and often are as people who are delusional in our optimism, as though Christians look out on the world and feel like, yeah, this is about as well as things could be run. We're pretty happy with the world around us, that God is, is, we say God is in control. My God is in control. We say God is in control. And people think that that means that Christians look out on a broken world and go, this is about as good as it should be. But of course not. Of course not. Neither is Paul. Yes, he has optimism. Yes, he is rejoicing. But he sees with a very cold, clear vision the world around him as we do. He just also sees that it's the Lord who is playing this chess match. I don't know if you ever watched chess, you know, uh, hopefully things are going better for you than that. But if you ever on YouTube watch, I'm somewhat attracted to the concept of these like grandmasters, these people who are prodigious in their understanding and they're just, they're geniuses. They have this ability to play chess at a super high level, even when they're very young. 
And so there's sort of a spectacle to, spectacle to that, and you can watch it if you ever choose to. And you get the idea that if you ever played these guys, you would just, of course, get dominated. It does not mean, however, that you wouldn't take a couple pieces. It's possible you get a turn after their turn. Maybe you do. You did. Maybe totally cost you the game, but you might be able to take a bishop, maybe a rook. You know, though, that when you do that, they're going to smile. Why? Well, you take my rook, but I take your king. Yeah, you may take a piece, but I'm going to win. And so they maybe even talk to you and you say, okay, I'm going to try and take this bishop. And he goes, you shouldn't do that. Well, why? Well, if you do that, I'm going to do this, 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 and then you lose. Oh, okay. Well, what if I do this? No, I wouldn't do that. Okay, but then what I, and it just, of course, you're not going to win. And Paul is very aware that God is this chess master. He is seeing everything that's going on, and he has the ability that he has proved time and again to bring his purposes to completion. That's what Paul was so excited about the first half of this chapter when he said that I'm confident that the God who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. Why is he confident? Because he knows this God. He sees how big this God is and he sees evidences all throughout Scripture and all throughout his life of the way God is able to take what seems wicked and awful, in fact is, and yet bring it to his own glory and our good. You have to see this. You have to believe this. You have to understand this so that you will continue to push and enjoy and rejoice even when things are really, really dark. That's what I want you to see. I want you to see that in bad situations, God is still working. I want you to see what Paul sees as he is preaching this to the Philippians and saying, I know I'm imprisoned. I know that I'm marginalized and beaten and chained and shamed. And I, I, I was in jail when I was there with you. And then wouldn't you know it, I'm back in jail. And yet there is still a God in heaven and he is not far from any of us. He's still working. So we live in a world where people assume that because things are bad, God cannot be good. Or he can't be all-powerful. Something's got to give. Because evil definitely does exist. Things are not how they should be. Then either God doesn't exist or he's not all-good and all-powerful. And all this kind of came about around the time of the Renaissance. The, the, The people that were kind of in the know at that time, the culture makers and the intellectual elite, they, they kind of got this confidence that human intelligence can solve any problem, unknot any knot. And because they had that level of confidence, when they looked at the age-old problem of why things are bad sometimes if God is good, they decided that because they didn't come up with an answer to it, there could be no answer. Therefore, there can be no God. Now, the Christian wants to respond and say, uh, of course not. God is bigger than that. He's bigger than us. He's given evidences of the way he can take what is evil and bring it to what is good. And even if I don't understand how he's going to do that in every instance, at every time, in my life and in everyone's life, even if I can't connect all of those dots, I trust that he can. And we see that really clearly in, in Job. Now, I bring up Job a lot. The Bible reading plan I'm in, it just ends up bringing me through Job a lot. And yet, the more you go through it, the more rewarded you get because there's a lot here. And in this book of Job, this guy, Job, very righteous person, goes through incredible suffering. Just kind of the worst suffering you can imagine. 
And he comes through it, he's in it, and he has these friends that come and talk to him and they tell him like, buddy, I'm so sorry this happened, but are you ready to repent? And he's like, repent of what? I mean, God is doing this to me and I, there's no reason for it. And they're like, God's good. If you're suffering, it must be because you're just a total jerk. What'd you do? Confess, 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 confess. And they keep poking him. You know God's good. You know this is happening to you is because you must be very, very wicked. Well, what'd you do? And he keeps saying, I didn't do it. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but my life is not so much worse than your life that my life should have the suffering that it has and you should go on with your wealth and your health. And you get through and they kind of come to loggerheads and it's 30-something chapters of that. But then there's this other guy. And we don't talk about him a lot if you ever read through the book, though. He's very present. His name's Elihu. And he comes and he brings what I think is actually pretty good advice. And if you're reading through, he takes a couple of chapters to kind of gear up to what he's ready to say. And it sounds like the beginning of a rap album where they're like, here we go, get ready. It's coming. It's about to come. My flow, it's about to break. It's about to come. And you're like, well, then do it. And that's what it sounds like with Elihu. He's like, okay, you old men, I waited. You didn't have any wisdom, but it's about to come. Sit down. Here comes. Okay. But this is what he says. If you go to Job 35... And I'm going to kind of cherry pick because, gosh, you know, we're already kind of running behind a little bit. But, but he, he lays out very clearly that why would you think that God fits into your little schemes? Job 35 and verse 5, he says, look at the heavens and see. There are clouds and they are higher than you. You, you don't sit over all of creation in the majesty of your wisdom. Even the clouds are higher than you. Go down to verse 9. Because of the multitude of, the oppressions, uh, of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. He's saying there, there is suffering in this world. And because of that suffering, people cry out. But even those people, none of them say, where is God my maker? who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens. Really? Why? Verse 13. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see Him, that the case is before Him, and you are waiting for Him. Now again, maybe that's a little bit cloudy on first reading and not really having a lot of context to it. But he's saying, listen, Job and Job friends, you are saying I have set up court and God must come to defend himself. Where is he? Whoa. Elihu is is confronting him. He's saying, check yourself. Who do you think you are to require God to explain his ways to you? He's the maker of the heavens and the earth, and you're not. Now, Job doesn't respond to him. You don't know if he's just so worn out or if what Elihu is saying is starting to kind of prepare him for what then God says at the end of the book, which is pretty similar, where God says, dress yourself like a man. I will question you. You will answer me. And he lays out his godness. And Job has to just put his hand over his mouth. You, like I, like Paul need to see the grandness of God, need to understand that while the non-Christian may say that God can't be good if I can't understand him. Listen, for that, for that non-Christian that might say that, God's bigger than you. You don't have to accept that completely yet. Just understand that categorically. That's our response. 
but also for the Christian, because there's many Christians who are living in a great deal of anxiety or a great deal of like bitterness towards God because what they thought he would do for them, he hasn't done. But God never promised that he was going to fulfill your lusts, that your desires that you bring to God and say, okay, I'm going to become a Christian because as I become a Christian, then I'll be loved. And what you mean by that is worshipped. And then you just feel so bitter because this Christianity thing hasn't led to your own self-aggrandizement. Well, he never promised to do that. He's God. You're not. That means that not only does he save you and love you and bring you good things, he also gets to rewrite your desires and put them in order. Well, you got to see it. You got to understand it. If you did, if you do though, if you'll if you'll follow that humble path, then with Paul, you're going to gain the ability to rejoice even in a jail cell. Look at look at what Paul was dealing with. He's not just chained. He even sees God overcoming through this very specific and kind of odd to my ear problem of bad people. Not just bad people, but bad Christians. Look what it says in verse uh, 15. It says, indeed, some are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter, they do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. They love me. They're preaching the same message that I preach out of goodwill. But the former, envy and rivalry, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. They're not sincere, but they're thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. What? Some people were preaching this very electric, unpopular message with the sole plan of, out of a heart that's filled with rivalry and, and selfish ambition, envy, the sole desire of seeing Paul's situation get worse. You know, there's Paul guys in prison because Rome thinks that whatever he's doing could be a problem. And they're thinking, well, let's make it a problem. And then Rome will take care of this Paul guy. Flipping and backwards and upside down and crazy. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. But it was happening. And can I tell you that as a Christian who lives 2,000 years later, I'm very glad for this example where God's able to say that sometimes Christians, Christian leaders... Eloquent Christians with big platforms fail. You've seen that, haven't you? Open up your eyes just a little bit. Pray it doesn't happen at Hope Church. Some people, it's possible to preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. That the enemy has put serpents even in among the people. That there's wolves among the sheep. That's scary. That's scary as a guy who's standing here talking to you. I'm wondering. I'm wondering with Peter how to make my calling and election. Sure, I'm scared. Pray for me. How do we exist in a world where even the Christians could be the ones bringing about the enemy's ends? Well, God's even able to overcome that. He has the ability. He has the the wisdom. He has the power. And we've got the examples. 
I, I don't have time to go through all the scripture and do this, but I, I found three that I think are powerful, and I, I just want to bring them to you. And it's going to take a second to explain each one, which is, again, why I had to talk quick. So listen fast, okay? In... John, there's this moment where the religious leaders are confronting Christ as they did so many times through Christ's time. But, but understand who this is for, for a moment. In Jesus, he's preaching the gospel. He's doing his ministry, and one of his friends dies. They, they hear that he's sick. Jesus waits for the guy to die, like that dead died, three days dead, stinky dead. And then he goes to Lazarus' tomb, and then, and it's amazing, please read it, but he raises this guy Lazarus from the dead. And everyone there knows that this is a straight-up resurrection. A dead man is now an alive man because of this Jesus guy. And even though they can't connect all the dots about who Jesus is and how he fits within the scope of God's promises and work, they understand this is a big deal. And the Pharisees, instead of converting, are scared because they're threatened. Envy, rivalry. They sound a lot like the people in Philippians 1, right? And instead of converting and following Christ and and falling to their knees, they start figuring out, what the heck are we going to do about this dude? If he gets any more of a following, Rome's going to get real upset with us and take away our kingdom. What are we going to do? And apparently they talk to each other with some pretty saucy language because it says in 1149, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, or the, the guy who was the high priest of Israel plotting to kill the God of Israel, And yet look what the Lord does. He said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. In that moment, he plots the high priest of Israel to kill the God of Israel. That's what he's doing. He's saying, let's just kill him. And yet, In that most wicked moment, that most upside-down moment where the serpent is wearing the robes of the high priest, even then, God is in control. It says in verse 51, he didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, God prophesied through him. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The cross is the ultimate spot where we see this, and that's what's being proclaimed there. He's saying, don't you get it? John, the the apostle who is writing this book, is saying, don't you get it? That even when the serpent is wearing the robes of the priest, even when the enemy is is in control of the guy who is the high priest of Israel, God is still prophesying through him that even when humanity kills God in Christ, God uses that to bring about the salvation of all that are far, of all those that are his. Another place in Romans 11. This is Paul writing, uh, David read from us, for us from Romans 10. But in Romans 11, Romans 9 through 11, Paul's dealing with oh, his anxiety, his intense, his intense sadness and, and mourning because the people, his people, Israel, are not accepting Christ. He's been preaching for a minute now, and he'll tell you that when he goes to these different towns, he starts with the Jews, he goes to the synagogue, but they've been rejecting. And he begins Romans 9 by saying, I could wish that I was accursed if it meant that they would become his. He's saying, I would give up heaven and accept hell if it meant that they would leave hell and go to heaven. That's love. I don't feel that. I should. But that's love. 
And he proceeds in Romans 9 through 11 to deal with that issue to the point that when he gets to Romans 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 2, he's, he's, he's dealing with it by understanding it in the context of all of Scripture. And he remembers another story when he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know that what the Scripture says of Elijah, Old Testament prophet, how he appeals to God against Israel? There was a time when Israel was so eaten with idolatry and walked away from God and worshiping these other gods that, that Elijah is totally broken down and he's praying to God against Israel and says, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. That's kind of the opposite of Paul in prison in Philippians rejoicing. This is Elijah looking at the people of Israel who have walked away totally from God and saying, I think I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me too. Verse 4, but what is God's reply to him? <laughs> I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. See what he's saying? You get it? When it seems like God is totally out of control, if he takes a moment to respond to you, <laughs> you're the last one. I've got 7,000 that have never bowed the knee. Paul looks at that and he knows that that same situation is true then. He understands that same situation is true when he's shackled. It, if it's true in all of those moments, listen, it, it's true today. Man, it just seems like there's just nothing. And he's saying, I'm God and I'm in control. Third example with Paul's own first church. It takes a minute to read this. We're running out of time. But in Acts 11, there's this persecution that takes place because this first martyr, Stephen, is killed. Um, so the, the church is getting built, and all of a sudden, persecution. Bad guys are killing Christians, and so the Christians have to scatter, or they choose to scatter. And in the scattering, they, they go flying out of Jerusalem just anywhere. And they're going as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, and they're speaking the word to no one except for Jews. So even as they're traveling, they're still preaching the gospel. They're just only speaking to other people like themselves. But there were some of them, some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Greeks, the Hellenists also. And they, they were preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This report gets back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem sends Barnabas, one of their good guys, to go and see what's happening he not only validates, he's overwhelmed by this outpouring of the Spirit that all these people are believing. Greeks, they don't get any of it. And they're believing in this Jesus. They're becoming Christians. The Holy Spirit is filling them up and working through them. And it's, it's too much. He's got to go and get somebody else to help him. So he goes back to, well, he goes to where Paul was. And he brings this Saul Paul guy. And Paul, his first church, the first place where he goes and he learns to lead Christians to study the scriptures and apply it to the life of believers, is this church in Antioch. <laughs> the persecution that happened because Paul was killing Christians led to the church where Paul learned to be a pastor. The church that was so influential that it was at Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. You think God can't turn this around? You think your God is not in control? He's in control. He's with us. He's with us in the fire. <laughs> He's with us as a shelter. He's with us in the storm. 
Philippians continues. He says, yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Do you see he's got two different ideas going at the same time? He's saying, I expect to be delivered. My God's big enough. I'm on his team. It's totally possible. But, you know, if not, he's got both of them going at the same time. He is hopeful for a good outcome, for for more opportunity for the work that God has called him to. But if not, whether by life or by death, I know that Christ will be honored. Okay. Well, is that so good? Well, continue. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to be in the flesh, that means labor for me. It means fruitful effort for me. And yet, mm, which I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that's far better. He's not in this for acclaim. He's not in this for power. He's not in this to see his name raised up high. He wants Jesus. That's why he's in the Christian ministry, is to to get Jesus' name known throughout the world. And so, yeah, if he has the option, that's what he wants. That's his desire. It's far better. But, you know, to keep pushing the ball forward, to remain in the flesh, it's more necessary on your account. And so convinced of this. I know that I'm going to remain. I'm going to continue with you all. I'm going to keep sharing the gospel in these janky chains for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. If Christ is your treasure, Jesus said it himself on the Sermon on the Mount, where you build in your house You build it on the sand, you're going to lose it. But if you build it on the rock, if you build your life on something that can't be shaken by death or suffering, then you have joy in all circumstances, as this Paul guy does. Oh, and so he starts praying for these people, these people that he is willing to keep living and suffering in order to serve. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I'm going to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He's saying that I'm going to keep doing this. I want you to get it. I want you to get it together. Be one people together. And that if you will, you're not going to be frightened by anything. That any of these lions and tigers that circle around, though you be as small as a mouse, they won't frighten you. And your lack of fear and your constant rejoicing will be a sign to them of their destruction. Hopefully leading to their repentance and salvation. And man, it's not going to be easy. Because it says, verse 29, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you're not only going to believe in him, But you're also going to suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. He says you're going to to suffer. You can have joy in suffering because of Christ. You can have life without Christ that's going to end in just nothingness, separation from God and punishment. 
or you can have him and his suffering. And we're about to take the Lord's Supper. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we remember Christ's death till he comes. The Lord's Supper is a symbol of Christ's death on our behalf, but it is also a symbol of the meal he is bringing us to. As we take the Lord's Supper this morning, I want you to remember the marriage, the marriage vows that are kind of traditional Christian marriage vows, which says, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do you part. And we believe that. My marriage is great, but when I die or she dies, yep, that's it. That ends the contract. It's going to take a minute, but, you know, she'll find somebody. I will, hopefully. Till death do you part. Because that marriage is not the ultimate reality. That marriage is pointing to the ultimate reality that at death I will receive him. <laughs> this supper is reminding you that you're going to suffer, but when you die, to live as Christ and to die is gain. It's to be his and to be with him for always. At death, you're not going to part. You'll be his. And that's worth anything. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, I pray that these truths, without really a lot of like things to go and do from them, Lord, there wasn't like 25 things to go and do because of the things that we preach today, but these truths equip us for joy in a struggle that you have called us to. Joy in a battle that will require suffering. Lord, you called us to go and make disciples of every nation and tribe and people and tongue. All the nations, all over the ends of the earth. And if we do that, it's, it's going to require suffering, Lord. And yet you are with us, even to the very end of the age. I pray that that encouragement would swell within us and make us not frightened in anything. And that that would be a sign to many that we've got something here, something eternal and something that they need. I pray that you would do these, Lord, these things of, of drawing your people together to strive side by side for your glory and our good. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.